0: Good morning. Good morning. 1 1 okay. Good morning everyone. This is one. one. Good morning, everyone. So let's get started with the very last lecture in our motor series. This morning, we're going to look at peripheral uh, nervous system disorders. So in looking at these disorders, we're going to look at what are negative and positive manifestations of peripheral nervous system diseases. And then we're going to go through how we measure conduction velocity and why is it useful as we assess our patient. We're going to review the structure of the peripheral nerve, and then we're going to talk about what can happen to this nerve during... Uh, damage or injury, and we're going to look at crush injuries and, axon- and axonomy, and this is principally a review objective because everything that we're going to cover there or you would have already um, touched on already in your neuroscience your series. Then we're going to look at the events that are related to denervation and re And then we're going to look at some examples of of diseases that affect the peripheral nerves. So we're going to look at Gillian Barry, we're going to look at diabetes, Hansen's disease, and a few others. So for peripheral nervous system diseases, we can have positive manifestations or we can have negative manifestations. And a positive manifestation is where you have an excess of a particular um, activity, or a distortion of that that type of activity. And the negative manifestation is where you have loss or a decrease or diminution of that particular function. Whether it's sensory or motor in nature, your symptoms can be positive or they can be negative. And since we've covered that, let's just answer this question. Okay, let me turn this down. So we have this 26-year-old woman who comes to her doctor because she's having problems with the wrist. and physical examination shows wasting of her thinner muscles. She has a positive phalens and tinels um, test. What, do you guys remember phalens and tinels from your um, MSK? Yes, I see some people nodding their head, and I see people doing this. Which one is this? Phalens and tinels would be tapping over the the flexor retinaculum region. Very well. So you guys are ready for this BSC? No? Okay. Well, you're well on your way to being ready. So which of the following findings uh, represents a positive manifestation associated with this disease? So not too long ago, we looked at what positive manifestations were and what negative manifestations were. So negative is when you have a diminution or decline in that particular function, while positive means you have an enhanced or an excessive, okay? So with numbness, would this be a positive or a negative manifestation? It's negative because you have decreased sensation. What about atrophy? Negative. um, Paresis? Negative two. Paresthesia Positive. 58% of you are able to get that correct, and so we're actually going to go through some of those um, examples. So, those of you who have um, some misconceptions, we can clear that up. So, let's begin by looking at a few examples of positive symptoms, and all of these you would have looked at before. So, this is just a review, basically. So, fasciculations, we said, are visible twitches within the muscles. And we usually see that with low motor neuron diseases. And so because it's an excessive activity, it's more than normal, it's gonna be a positive symptom. Paresthesia, all right, that's basically tingling in um, the area that is innervated by a particular nerve. And this is going to be, again, a positive symptom as you would have seen in in the previous question. Um, <coughs> trigeminal neuralgia, I know that you would have talked about that in anatomy, and you would have looked at it early on in, um, in this neuroscience uh, module. And there's excessive pain in the region of the trigeminal nerve, the dermatome that's innervated by the trigeminal nerve. So this, again, is going to be a positive symptom, pain. Now, your negative symptoms would be loss, decline, the ammunition. So if you have loss of strength, whether it's paralysis, which is complete loss, or paresis, partial, that's a negative symptom as we saw in the question. Your tendon reflexes, hyporeflexia or areflexia is going to be a negative symptom, while hyperreflexia is going to be a positive symptom. Anhydrosis, all right, as you can see with uh, Horner's syndrome, that would be a negative symptom. You have lost the ability to produce uh, sweat. And then, of course, impaired sensations such as numbness. Now, as we seek to assess peripheral nervous system diseases, we can do a nerve conduction study. And in this lecture, we're going to look at how we assess nerve conduction velocity. That's basically how fast the um, impulses are being transmitted along the nerve. And it can be a sensory impulse or a motor impulse. So as we assess patients we want to assess their nerve, condu- nerve conduction study as it relates to motor activity and sensory activity. So we'll begin by looking at the conduction velocity measurements um, for motor neurons. So here we see that we have the setup. So in this instance, they're measuring the conduction velocity for motor neurons in the arm. So we see that in the cubital fossa, we have a stimulator. And then we have the recorder at the the thinner muscles in the palm of the hand. We also have a stimulator at the wrist. So what we're going to be doing is stimulating this nerve at two different locations, and then measuring how long it takes for that impulse to get to the recorder in the palm of the hand. So here at um, T2, we're going to, so sorry, here at the cubital fossa, we're going to stimulate the nerve. The impulse is going to travel down the forearm and get to the recorder, and we're going to document that time. Then we are going to stimulate the nerve at the wrist. The impulse, of course, is going to travel to the recorder in the palm of the hands. And then we're going to look at the distance between between um, these two stimulators, the distance between those two stimulators. And so the calculator conduction velocity, we're going to take that distance into consideration and the time it actually takes for the nerve, the difference between the sorry, the difference between T1 and T2. T1 and T2 being the time it takes for that impulse to travel to the um, recorder in the palm of the hand. And here we see some um, recordings that would have been taken during this um, study. And in the stimulator that's farthest away from the recorder, we see that initially we have uh, a little twitch here. And, this, and if you notice in the second stimulator, the one that is closer to the recorder, We see that um, elevation there is actually larger than in the stimulator that is farther away from the recorder. And the reason for that is just that the second stimulator, the one that is actually closer to the recorder, because it's so close to the recorder, the initial stimulation actually is recorded on um, our tracing here. Why it's so small at the cubital fossa is because we're farther away. From the, um, from the palm of the hand where we have the recording. And so, for conduction velocity for our motor neurons, we're looking at a value of between 55 to 60 meters per second as normal. Okay, so anything below that would be abnormal. For sensory, it's kind of like this, it's, sim- it's a similar setup. But in this instance here, we have the stimulator on the index finger, okay? So we're going to stimulate the index finger, and we're going to look at the time it takes for that that impulse to move to the recorder that is at a risk. And we're going to look at the time it takes for that impulse to move to the recorder that is at the cubital fossa. And then we're going to take the distance between these two recorders into consideration and divide that by the difference between the time it takes to get to um, recorder one and recorder two. And again, for normal values, we're looking at between 55 and 60. So let's look at some disease processes that can affect our conduction velocity. So as we said, normal is 55 to 60. So if we have a lesion, of the motor neuron soma. We're going to see a slight, and this is, actually, this is actually a minimal lesion, all right, at the motor neuron soma. What are we going to see as it relates to our conduction velocity? So you may see a slight decrease or no change in the conduction velocity because we still have our functional axon. But as it relates to the sensory nerve, there is gonna be no change in the conduction velocity because we're injuring the motor neuron. So the changes that we would see, if any, is going to be in the motor neuron and not the sensory neuron. If we have a demyelinating lesion, it's gonna significantly affect our conduction velocity because as we discussed and as you would have known from previous lectures, your myelin sheath allows for the efficient propagation of your impulses. And so, therefore, all demyelinating lesions will affect the conduction velocity for your motor and sensory nerves, and that is the nerves that are affected. If you compress the nerve, are you going to affect the conduction velocity? Yes. You're going to affect the conduction velocity at the sites that you're actually having the compression. If you have axonal degeneration, we can have a slight reduction in the conduction velocity or no conduction, depending on how much the axon has degenerated. For neuromuscular junction and muscle disorders, we will see no effect to the conduction velocity because we're measuring what's happening in the nerve. For neuromuscular junction disorders and disorders affecting the muscles or myopathies, the nerve is not affected. So these will not affect our conduction velocity. So here we have a cross-section of our peripheral nerve. We have the epineuron on the outside, and the inside we have our vesicles that are surrounded by perineurium. And then we have endoneurium on the inside that surrounds our axons. And our axons can be affected by compression injuries, such as what we see in carpal tunnel syndrome. can be crush injuries, or we can actually sever the axon completely. Now, carpal tunnel syndrome is a syndrome that you know very well, because you were able to show me the tunnels and the phalanx tests. Now, we know that the carpal tunnel is found at the wrist. And it's basically, it's a tunnel that encloses nine structures We have eight tendons, and we have, sorry, nine tendons, and our median nerve that courses through the carpal tunnel. And that tunnel, the anterior surface, would be our flexor retinaculum, and of course, posteriorly, we have our carpal bones. And we can appreciate that there's a tight space, and so if we have any swelling in that region, we are going to compress our median nerve and therefore produce the characteristic findings that we see in carpal tunnel syndrome. And of course, when you do the tinnitus test, you tap on the flexor retinaculum Because your median nerve is being compressed, we're going to have um, tingling, all right, or paresthesias along the distribution of the sensory distribution of the median nerve in the, in the hand. And as we saw in the question earlier, we're also going to see some wasting of the, uh, the, the thinner muscles because we know that the median nerve is the primary nerve that supplies the muscles of the thinner eminence. So we're gonna see wasting also. As we said, the, the patients will have pain and tingling and difficulty handling small objects. It actually has been shown that a lot of patients who develop carpal tunnel syndrome are those Whose job requires them to do a lot of, you know, handling, um, fine handling of of objects. It can also be seen in patients who have hypothyroidism, pregnancy. All right, anything that can actually cause swelling in this in this particular area can lead to carpal tunnel syndrome. Some studies have shown that um, carpal tunnel syndrome can develop. If you lose the blood supply to the median nerve in that region of the carpal tunnel, and you can appreciate that the median nerve is going to be affected if you lose the blood supply um, in that region. So, crush injuries. So, this is a picture of a patient who would have had a crush injury, and how can crush injuries affect us? All right, so crush injuries can actually compress the nerve severely or they can cause severing of the nerve, okay? And we're going to look at axonomy. So here we have our axons, okay? We have this peripheral nerve. You can see that it's surrounded by Schwann cells that is going to provide for its myelination. And we have proximal and distal communications with this peripheral nerve. So if this nerve is severed, what we see happening initially is Wallerian degeneration, where the portion of the nerve distal to the injury is going to degenerate. And after we have valerian degeneration, of course, we know that we can have anterogrid transneural degeneration, where the nerve that communicates with this severed nerve, the distal nerve that communicates with this severed nerve, can actually degenerate. And we can also have the proximal nerve that is communicating with this nerve degenerating also. Now, after axonomy or any injury to axons in the peripheral nervous system, there is hope for regeneration, which is not so for the central nervous system. And we're going to talk about why we see this difference Between the peripheral and the central nervous system as it relates to the regeneration or the regrowth of nerve. So, yes, we've severed it, so we see that the distal portion here is degenerated, but in the peripheral nervous system, there can be regrowth. And the first thing that happens for regrowth is axonal sprouting. All right, so we see that our axons, it's sprouting, actually trying to find the original position that it's. assumed, or it was in before. Now, what allows for axonal sprouting? We have nerve growth factors that are released from Schwann cells. And these growth factors, they're not released from oligodendrocytes. And therefore, that's one of the reasons we can see regeneration in the peripheral nervous system and not in the central nervous system. So these growth factors allow the axon to find its path. And you see the average rate of growth is about 1 mm per day, so it's going to take a while for that um, axon to actually regrow, to attach to the muscle or the other fibers that it was attaching to. Now, after our axon is reestablished, it now has to be myelinated. And so you see here it it has regrown. And now we said there's remyelination of that regenerated axon. And so function can be reestablished in this person, whether it's sensory or motor in nature. Regeneration in the central nervous system, does it occur? Not likely. And as we said, one reason is because your oligodendrocytes, which are the cells responsible for myelination in the central nervous system, they do not produce this growth factor that we see is very useful in the peripheral nervous system. Also, there are also mechanical factors that we have to take into consideration as it relates to what is preventing regeneration in the central nervous system. Because of gliosis, which is um, mediated by our astrocytes, you now have scarring. So even if the, the, the nerve within the central nervous system is trying to regrow, you now have a physical barrier that is preventing that nerve from sprouting and being regenerated. And there may also be chemical signaling that opposes um, regeneration in adults. So after the nerve has been regenerated, you've replaced the myelin sheet. It's time for that nerve to actually be connected again with the skeletal muscle that it's associated with. That, that is, if it's a motor nerve that we're talking about. So here, we have the normal communication between our peripheral nerve, and it's going to communicate with our muscle fibers, as we see here. And of course, you have your receptors in close communication with the nerve terminal. Now, if we have a denervating lesion, where just the nerve is affected, and not the muscle, we will see a different picture as compared to if we have a lesion that affects both the nerve and the muscle, okay? So let's begin by looking at the lesion that affects the nerve and not the muscle. So here we see that we have re So we've had the sprouting, the axon has regrown, we've myelinated it. Now, because we had no injury to that muscle, this process is actually easier um, in patients who would have had this type of lesion. So we see that in this instance here, the basal lamina of the muscle is intact, and in this instance, the basal lamina of the muscle has been removed. So if you look here, we see that there is not much communication between our, re- our regenerated nerve and the the receptors, okay? So because of the removal of the basal lamina, the, there's an absence or decreased amount of receptors, and so function is going to be a little bit more difficult to be regained in these patients as compared to those who have just only injured the nerve and not the basal lamina. So what are the structures that we have that helps for this um, communication to be established in an efficient way? We have laminin 11 and laminin 12, and these are said to basically allow for the communication, effective communication to occur between our regenerated nerve and the um, end plate. So here we see that laminin 11 is not necessarily at the end plate, but it plays a role in reestablishing the communication. Laminin 2, sorry, is not in the end plate while laminin 11 is actually in the end plate. Now that we've talked about those topics, we can now look at a few examples of diseases that affect our peripheral nervous system. And we begin by looking at Guillain-Barre syndrome, and I know that you would have uh, spoken about this earlier up in the course. So this is a clinical syndrome that manifests as an acute inflammatory polyradiculo roots, so polymeni, radiculo neuropathy, with resultant rapidly ascending, and know this word, ascending motor and sensory loss two or three weeks, underscore this again, after a respiratory or gastrointestinal illness. To so the patient that has Guillain-Barre syndrome, you're looking for a history of some viral or bacterial illness affecting the respiratory or GI tract. So usually they come and um, they're telling you that, you know, I'm having this weakness and it, it seems to be extending up, all right? It's ascending. And, oh, maybe a few weeks ago, yeah, I had a cold or I had gastroenteritis or, or something else of that nature, okay? So this is a classical picture that we see with patients who has... Gillian Barry syndrome, and not—I think maybe it was last year, or the year before, or a year before the last—we had um, we had a patient with this syndrome here um, in Grenada, and he would have died, and he developed it after he had a Zika virus. All right, he was in inve- he had the Zika, and you, you know we had a Zika scare here not too long ago. I even had it, um, yes. And after his viral infection, he developed this weakness and so on, and eventually. It caused um, respiratory compromise, and he succumbed to uh, the disease. So males are more affected um, than females, and it's about 2 in 100,000 as it relates to the um, incidence. Now, What can we see in patients who have Guillain-Barre? If we do a lumbar puncture, apart from the clinical picture in terms of the recent infection and the ascending um, motor and sensory deficits, If we do a lumbar puncture, we will see these patients having elevated protein in their CSF. Okay, so you want to look for that in your stem. It might help you to come to the right answer. Your nerve conduction studies, we are going to do nerve conduction studies for these patients. And what do you think we're going to see in nerve conduction studies for patients with Guillain-Barre? It's going to be slow, all right? It's going to be slow. And your EMG, of course, is going to be abnormal, too, because we're having, we're affecting the ability of the muscle to be stimulated okay, by that the nerve that is affected. So in managing these patients, we want to use um, immunoglobulins, plasma exchange, all right? So that's going to help to fight against the um, autoimmune problem that is causing the disease. And of course, we're going to want to give ventilatory support for them because as the weakness ascends when it gets to the trunk, well then it's gonna be difficult for those patients to, um, to have a ventilate, an efficient ventilatory effort, and so um, they will need ventilatory support while we tackle the immune problem. Now once we're able to give them the support that they need, generally, recovery, the prospects for recovery is good, and then we can have remyelination of the peripheral nerves that are affected. Leprosy, also known as Hansen's disease, okay? so This is a chronic infection that affects the skin and peripheral nerves, and it is treatable. Now, what is the bacteria that we're looking at? Microbacterium leprae. And this bacteria, basically, what it does is when it it multiplies, it actually causes compression of the nerve. So this is not necessarily demyelinating, all right, So the, multi- the multiplication of the bacteria is going to cause compression of the nerve, and so we're going to see the characteristic findings that is associated with leprosy. Um, so the characteristic finding that we see is pain. The patients lose the ability to sense pain and temperature. All right, So that's the principle problems that they have, of course, they're going to have these um, hypopigmented lesions on the skin. And depending on the type of leprosy, you may also see nodules and so on. Um, These patients, usually, you will see a lot of deformation in their limbs because of the um, inability to use the limb effectively. You may see contractures. And it's important to know that these patients can actually lose parts of their limbs, like parts of the fingers and toes because they can't feel, all right? They have a difficulty sensing injury, so there's repeated injury to a particular body part, and so it eventually is significantly damaged. Um, there are many types of leprosy. Two of the most common types you have is your tuberculoid and your lepromatous leprosy. Now, the lepromatous leprosy is the, it's more severe than the tuberculoid type, but in the lepromatous type, um, it has been shown that Um, sensation is not as affected as in the tuberculoid type, okay? So we will also see wasting and muscle weakness, and as I said, it's a treatable neuropathy, so it it can be treated with um, antibiotics. Lead poisoning, now patients who um, are poisoned by lead, you'll have different manifestations depending on the age of the patient. If we have an older person, we're going to see motor neuropathy. But in children under the age of six, we usually see a picture of encephalopathy. Now this patient here, he has lead poisoning. And we're seeing here that he has a flexed wrist. And it has been shown that these patients usually lose uh, the function of their extensor muscles. I'm not sure why it's extensor more than flexors, but the extensors are primarily affected in patients with lead poisoning. Alcohol. Can it affect our peripheral nerves? Yes. Yes, we can have alcoholic peripheral neuropathy, And this is seen in patients who ingest more than 80 grams of alcohol per day. Okay, So you'll have sensory and motor manifestations and it's symmetrical in its presentation. The presentation usually begins with sensory manifestations that are distal in nature and then your motor manifestations will follow. In most cases, however, your nerve conduction velocities is not affected. And then we get to diabetes mellitus, which is a very common problem, all right? And this is principally a disease of lifestyle when you talk about type two diabetes. And of course, we know that type one diabetes is because of our inability to produce efficient amounts of insulin because of the damage to the pancreas. The patients, whether they have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, they are going to develop polyneuropathy. Of course, if you manage it well, it's going to take a longer time for it to develop. So usually, for a patient who has just been diagnosed with diabetes and maybe within a few years, you see that they're coming with um, signs and symptoms of polyneuropathy, it means that um, most likely their condition is not being managed well. And that could be maybe they're refractory to medication or in most instances, it's non-compliance. And usually, um, based on my experience, I think patients usually take, and I'm not necessarily making a generalization, but from what I've seen, patients, a a lot of patients, I should say, or a significant amount of patients, usually take diabetes lightly. Yes, I have, you know, in in the Caribbean here we say we have sugar, all right? So yes, I have sugar, but I'm feeling well, so I don't have to take my medication. And a similar picture you see with hypertension too, okay? But this disease is a very, very serious disease, okay? And um, I usually tell patients that it can destroy you body part by body part or organ by organ if we don't take it seriously. So as you interact with patients and you talk with them, You know, you should try to encourage them to be compliant with medications. At the same time, being compliant with medication is not necessarily an easy thing, having to take tablets every single day of your life or whether it's um, injections. I know for me, it's hard for me to complete a seven-day course of antibiotics, much less someone (laughs) who has to take medications every day. So it's a real struggle and uh, they definitely need the support all the support that they can get as it relates to being compliant, not only with the medication, but the diet and the lifestyle practices that would allow for these patients to, um, you know, have a meaningful life and a productive life. Now, what can we see as, as as it pertains to the presentation? So you can have sensory, motor, and autonomic, Nerves being affected. Okay, so as it relates to the sensory problem, it's usually symmetrical, and we be, we begin with the distal extremities. So we talk about the stockings and gloves um, presentation. Your motor manifestation is usually asymmetrical, right? So sensory it's symmetrical, motor it's usually asymmetrical, and in these patients, your sensory manifestation usually begins in the legs. And that's why you would commonly see many patients coming with a diabetic foot as compared to a diabetic hand. You can have a diabetic hand, but that's not something that you commonly see. You commonly see the diabetic foot because they're going to lose the ability to, um, or the sensory function in the foot. And so apart from being able to sense pain and temperature, They might also have problems with proprioception and joint position, all right? So they have a complex uh, problem that's going on with their foot. And because of that, um, lesions to the foot are more likely. I remember when I was in medical school and we were were at the diabetic foot center, there was a man who came and he was was wearing one-side shoes. and I found it strange because he looked like a respectable guy. He seemed to be neat. So I'm wondering why is he wearing one-side shoes? So I asked him, I said, why are you wearing one-side shoes? And he looked at his feet, and then is when he recognized that one of his shoes had had come off, okay? So because of the sensory deficit that he had, it was hard for him to be able to sense that he had lost um, one side of his shoes. So for these patients, they're advised to check their feet daily all right. Some people can have stuff stuck in their feet like a nail or some other thing, and they don't know it's there if they don't check, okay? Now, apart from affecting your nerves, diabetes will also affect your blood vessels. So if you've injured your foot because you've ha- you have a decreased ability to sense the injury, now you'll want that, in that, that injured area to heal. And if you don't have efficient blood supply going to that area, well, then healing is going to be difficult, okay? And so this is why these patients will develop um, or be at increased risk of developing injuries to the foot that do not heal. And if it doesn't heal, well, of course, um, they might need to amputate the leg or the toe or whatever body part it is. Um, Okay, so this, the, the, injuries to the, ner- the injuries to the nerve may originate because of failure of the cell body to supply its distal parts or because of other cytoskeletal um, prob- prob- problems. So here we have pictures of patients with um, diabetic foot, and it's just here for illustration purposes. So we can see the um, major injuries that they have to the leg, and this patient here, this patient here, most likely this toe is going to have to be removed because it's, it's gangrene. And you can see these massive lesions that they have to the foot because of the deficits. Please note you should not be taking pictures of the slides. Thank you. You shouldn't be taking pictures of the slides. Not. (laughs) Okay, so you're forty seven year old man. He comes to the physician because of weakness to the legs. And he is seen he was seen by a doctor three weeks prior because of a respiratory tract infection. His nerve conduction velocity is 30 meters per second in the leg and 60 meters per second in the upper limbs. What is, most li- what is the most likely cause of his presentation? So his complaint, his weakness in his legs, he was seen three weeks prior because of a respiratory illness. So we see decreased nerve conduction uh, velocity in the leg, but in the upper limb, it is normal. So based on all of that, what is the most likely cause of this patient's presentation? Do we think it's likely that he might have diabetes? Maybe, but based on the history, it's not likely, all right? What about amyotrophic lateral sclerosis? Not likely, all right? We don't see anything here as it relates to um, Hyperreflex, the the picture, the mixed picture of of upper and lower motor neuron syndrome. Um, Lead poisoning, not likely. What about leprosy? All right, he he doesn't come with um, complaints of loss of sensation. What about Guillain-Barre syndrome? Right, so as we said earlier, this is classic. He comes because of weakness in his legs, so it's an ascending weakness. It starts in the legs. He had a um, history of a respiratory tract illness three weeks prior, again, classical. And when we look at the nerve conduction velocity in the lower limbs, it is abnormally low as compared to the upper limbs. So this is classic for someone who would have a Guillain-Barre syndrome. I think that's the last slide. All right, you can take your break and we'll come back for the clinical case. Uh... Uh-huh.